And Exodus 11, uh, we'll start at verse 1 and go through the end of the chapter, 10 verses this time. We have been taking out huge chunks that we've gone through three plagues at a time. And now we're going into the 12th plague, which involves more than just uh, a chapter also. It uh, is quite lengthy and it uh, sets up what uh, is going to happen the rest of the book. But what we're here for is to magnify God and to see His power his magnificence. We continue on with this account of this plague uh, and all of the plagues. And you know, when we look at it, what we're doing is exalting his, just his great majesty and the very authority that he has in all this, his sovereignty. We first see God and how he works in, in all things. It's an awesome God that we have. And uh, so when we do that in our own lives, it helps us to live out what um, and who we are. Realizing that He is controlling things and He's working out things for the excellence. Now we come to this last plague and uh, this is dealing with death. Death is going to deal the final blow to uh, this whole matter of uh, the uh, children of Israel escaping from Egypt. We know the firstborn sons of the Egyptians will be killed. All of them. And so then... Pharaoh is going to let God's people go after all these ten plagues. What this does, it's going to start a national feast for the nation of Israel. And to this day, that's still celebrated and carried out. That's 3,500 years ago. And uh, that's, this is how it started. Now, the plagues that we have seen are all bad in the sense if you were an Egyptian, and if you're Pharaoh. The only thing is it just keeps getting worse. And we've seen it escalate and get higher and higher. It keeps increasing in the intensity. And so it's not going, it doesn't get easier. It doesn't back off and give a little bit of break. It just gets harder and everybody sees that. This is like the worst that's coming up here. And this is what all of these have been building up to. And it gets up to the crescendo. This is the mighty act of God. And it's a mighty act of God that He has a purpose and He's going to bring His purpose to conclusion. His will is always done. Every detail here has worked out the way that God has wanted it. We know that this is the very final attack uh, on all that Egypt worshipped. And so all through these plagues, we have seen that they have worshipped different gods. There's only one God, and that's the one true God, Yahweh, and they don't worship Him. They did everything else but worship Him. They worshiped a lot of things. But what the Egyptians worshiped the most, I think, would be life itself. And you say, what's wrong with that? We celebrate life. We would back up uh, the idea of life. We're pro-life, Right? And so we should be. But what they did is they made life an idol rather than God because God Himself is life. They didn't look to the one true God as life, but they looked at all their other gods and saw where all their blessings came from, supposedly from them. They did not give thanks to God, did they? In Romans 1, where you have a display of God's wrath being put forth, he gives a reason why. And um, we know that the people don't give thanks. They don't give glory to Him. They don't worship Him, even though they know Him to be the ultimate true God. But they cannot worship Him and thank Him. So they go to other gods and make up gods in their own minds and uh, worship beasts and birds and all sorts of different things and put them in wooden forms. But their worship of life was very elaborate. We all know in history what the Egyptians did with their dead. We know of uh, many of the mummies. They would uh, try to keep them in that form. They believed in some kind of a resurrection at, uh, at some time. They believed in their afterlife, but not from the godly, true approach. So they made up their own thoughts of that. So they, they prepare the dead bodies elaborately. Uh, for the fact that those bodies would one day come back to life. So they were consumed with that. They had a blessings, the blessings of a mild climate 
if they were close to the Nile River, which most of the people uh, lived in that area. They had the sun every day. They very rarely had rain, but it was a beautiful sun with a, a mild climate. Uh, the Nile River, what a blessing that was. And uh, all the fertile soil that was close in that area. So they had quite the blessings if you were to compare them to desert people. They had everything that uh, they needed. And so what did they do? In return, they gave worship to their gods, the god of the Nile, the god, the sun god. Uh, everything that um, pertained to their blessings, they gave thanks to and worship to, but not to the right one. And so I think all through these plagues, not to read into any of these, but I think it is very interesting, as most commentators say, we'll bring out, like for instance... Uh, Ray, Ra, the sun god of Egypt, and, and some of the other ones. So they saw in their worship a continuation of life. The Nile River continues on. The sun comes out every day. To them, that was all eternal, dealing with life. Their gods would sustain them right on into the next world. Now, they got some of that's a lot of truth there. There is a um, life after death, and there's a lot of people that don't even believe in that today. Uh, but but then that's that's what they believe. Where do they get that from? Well, everything goes back to God's truth. What happens is God's truth gets distorted. And that's what Satan does. He is not a creator, but he takes God's truths and bends them and twists them and then gets people to follow him by following these religions and different thoughts of who God is and all of a sudden it turns into, well, false religions. So they believed they had the secret of life. And the Egyptians took great pride in that. And the very belief that they had about life resulted in death. Death to the firstborn. Firstborn is really important. We'll, we'll kind of touch on that as we go along. But uh, this is the ultimate. They did not give glory to God. And we know what uh, Romans 1 says about that. And so God attacks life itself in this last plague. He's the one that gives life, but He's also the one that that takes life. And the reason He's doing it is to show that He's the sole creator of life. We know that, but how many people don't? So we come to the climax of this story. We've now arrived at that. What we're going to do is take the first three verses here and read this. This It's going to be about uh, hearing God's Word. The Lord has said, Thus saith the Lord, right? So here we go, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Oh, how God works. When you see it coming to its culmination, then you go, oh, I get it. I see what God is doing here now. But when Moses first started out, especially when he was on the backside of the desert, he didn't know, did he? He didn't want to do what God told him to do. And he kept trying to back out of it. And as it went along, he didn't want to do it at the, from the very outset. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> so what do we have? We have um, Moses getting more confident and more trusting in God of being a God that's going to do what he said. He has now developed a faith as it went on by this plague right here. I mean, it's, all, it's already happened. Moses is coming in there with authority and telling God's word. Well, here's God saying, okay, and the Lord said to Moses, God is constantly giving directions to Moses. And that's a good thing. You know, he's revealing himself and his plan and how this thing's going to go. So all Moses really has to do is just what? Obey. Here's the word. Now, do this. Carry it on out. Just speak this. Just go to Pharaoh. Tell him this. Now, this, uh, the first uh, verse here, and 
could be what is called a parenthetical paragraph. And I don't want to get into the technical aspects behind it. it. It's a narrative here recorded that which we know that God has already said. He could be saying it again here exactly in this timing, or he could have been saying, and many are saying that he said it back in chapter 10 when Pharaoh and Moses were together uh, dealing with the, uh, the plague of darkness on the ninth plague. So um, he's getting, it could have been that He's getting him ready for the the summons uh, that Pharaoh had already brought forth with Moses. And God is coming uh, in and telling him one more thing through the person of Moses. Now, he had made other statements like this before. I'm going to bring one more plague on Pharaoh and Egypt. Okay, And after it, he will let you go from here. If you were to look back in chapter 4, verse 21 through 23... And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, this is before the plagues even happen, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So that was stated from the very outset. Before the plague started happening, God tells Moses, this is what's going to happen. And so here in chapter 11, he's saying what he has already stated before. Uh, Not anything really new. If you look in chapter 6, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will dry them out of his land. That means with God's power that he has, he's going to make Pharaoh drive the Israelites out. You know, with his strong hand and, and his strong power. Moses has been told that. And that was um, before the plagues happened also. So it could be that that would be talking about the, the chapter 4 or the chapter 6, or it could be somewhere in chapter 10 right at the end of that section. Whatever, it fits into the flow of, of the thoughts. We know it's the Word of God. It's not that something is way out of order and we're doubting that that should be in there. That's not the case. It should be there. It has to be there. And this is the way that it was written. Uh, by Moses. But anyway, it's it's a flow that moves us right into the Passover. And Pharaoh is going to dry them out finally. That's what verse 1 is about. Uh, Verse 2 and 3 are going to be dealing with how God graces Israelites and Moses and how He puts favor upon them. Uh, It says in 2, Speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. Tell the the Israelites that they are to take um, themselves, go to the people and ask for things from them. And when you get the word ask, or you might have borrow in your translation, let every man ask from his neighbor that would be kind of a hard thing to do, wouldn't it? Yeah, right. I'm a slave and they're going to give me what? Gold and silver. And the only thing is, remember how big God is. And if God has said this, I think might as well go ahead and do that because it's going to work. So, uh, the word for borrow or ask, which I started getting to a moment ago, means to collect back wages that are owed like for 400 years. The only thing is, this is a meager payoff for 400 years for that nation. You know, you think about that. But, you know, God has already stated this before, way back in His covenant, when He first gave it to Abraham in chapter 15 of Genesis. 15, 14. He says, you're going to be descendant, your descendants are going to go into a land. They're going to be strangers there. They're going to serve them. And they'll be afflicted for 400 years. God told that way before it happened, right? And then in verse 14, And also the nation whom they serve, which is Egypt, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Whatever God says, He truly means. And just a a side note on that, take that to our lives. 
whenever He says it in here, what He's done to our lives and what He's going to do in the future for our good and for His glory, you can say, thank the Lord. I know there are certain, certain things that He's going to do. You know, and we, we look forward to that. We look ultimately to the, uh, the eternal state, spending uh, the rest of eternity <laughs> with Him. You know, all those things. If we think on those things, whatever is true and lovely, good report and all those, if we start thinking on God's Word, all of a sudden our focus becomes Him and what He has said and knowing that this is resulting good for me. This is a good thing. His will is good and, and acceptable and perfect, as in Romans 12 too, right? So, that was promised. God never reneges on His promise. Exodus chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. We get a lot about character, don't we? Uh, the character of God when we just look at His covenant, His promises. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. When you leave out of Egypt, when it's the perfect timing that I have designed, when you go, I'm going to give favor and it's going to come not only from me, but the Egyptians are even going to grace you. They're going to favor you. Only God could do that. This is so good. So it's kind of like, as Chuck Swindoll said, it's kind of like making a withdrawal from an ATM. <laughs> they go and collect this, their uh, their belongings, you know, their, uh, just before they get out of town. <laughs> you know, you go to the ATM and get that because the bank is closed, but you can get that and you just move on. You know, they, they collect the silver and the gold. They'd be able to use that later for what? The tabernacle to glorify God. You say, what are they going to do with the gold and silver coins or whatever out there? What are they going to do with that? What are they going to do with all those? What if they're idols or whatever? Melt them down. Anyway, the tabernacle is going to be built out there in the desert. And uh, God is just making everything just fall into place. Just so good. God gives His grace at the proper time, doesn't He? Uh, of His sufferers, of His own people. Just when we think that He's forgotten about us, He gives us grace. Look in Proverbs 16.7. You guys like to go to Proverbs sometimes? 16.7. What a great God. When a man's ways please the Lord, He makes even His enemies to be at peace with Him. You like that? may not seem like at the time, but uh, God can work that out to, to be at that at that time. So... That's what God says. So it's going to be favor on the Israelites. God's going to grace them and the people are going to wind up giving them money. Then we go back to uh, Exodus chapter 11 now in verse 3. Finish that section. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Pharaoh's servants in the sight of the people I guess that would mean not necessarily from Pharaoh himself. <laughs> Pharaoh's mad. Pharaoh's very angry. But the slaves, which are the Israelites, and their leader, Moses, have become great in the eyes of the Egyptian people. They, it's like Pharaoh was like isolated from all the people and what they thought. Because he just can't admit what all has taken place. He just cannot. He has such a hard heart. And God has graced Moses all through this, hasn't He? From the very time that He um, met Moses uh, out there in the desert, whenever He um, kind of showed him who He was through the burning bush, showed a little bit of His nature. And that was quite a gracious moment. Can you imagine being able to hear God and his voice audibly like that. But more and more, he kept revealing to Moses how it was supposed to be. And he was, he kept giving Moses second and third and fourth and fifth chances. <laughs> and we can say, thank the Lord because that's certainly what He's had to do with me. You know, We're all there. 
We, we, we can identify with Moses in that, can't we? All of Egypt had great respect for Moses. I think the way that he spoke, the way that he acted, the things that he had been doing with God working through him. And I, I think you see the irony in all this. this is, the irony is just incredible. What a change that had occurred from the time of now to all the way back when Moses first came to Pharaoh and said, God says to let the people go. Now that first visit, it just didn't go over well at all, and none of them have. But now the people are accepting him, and more than accepting him, respecting him. What a witness that Moses had become in a nation that was actually had been their enemies. What a witness. I think this could remind us of Paul in the New Testament when so often he'd be found in jail. And he was in jail, he'd be bound up, and then he would wind up in certain jails and he would be like tied up, or chained, that is, to guards. And uh, he would show his lifestyle, which perfectly represented Christ, and he would have the opportunity to share Jesus Christ. So I, I think of Philippians 1.13, where he's writing a letter... And as he addresses the Philippians, he's writing the letter to them. He's telling them what's going on as he is imprisoned. And he says, so that his, it has become evident to the whole palace guard and all the rest that my chains are in Christ. To all those Roman soldiers, all the ones that he was chained up with even, and are being put in prison there. The whole palace guard were impressed by Paul, his whole lifestyle. He represented the God that he believed very well. So it's one thing to believe, but it's another thing to live it out. To believe means to live it out. And that is exactly what Moses did. That's what we see Paul do, and that's what we see all true Christians do. They will conform to God's truth. So there's the first part in the first three verses dealing with uh, hearing God's Word. Moses hears God's Word, and now he's to go speak it. So in verses 4 through 8, it'll be dealing with, with that. We'll take the 4, 5, and 6 here. Then Moses said... Thus says the Lord. Don't you like that? Remember the old King James? Thus saith the Lord. You have to love that. All through the Old Testament. About midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. Moses announces this, speaks God's word. He takes the word spoken to him by God and he tells it to Pharaoh in no uncertain terms. Totally addresses him with authority. This is the final address to Pharaoh who rejects it. And just like all the other warnings he rejected, he will do it again. And this is um, uh, an announcement. Just bringing forth, here's what's going to happen. He did not take God's word seriously. God has already spoken time and time and time and time again. He never took it seriously. Hey, he had no fear of God. We are to, to fear God in the proper manner and to recognize how holy He is, how great He is. What He says is true. I want to abide by it. So Moses says, thus says the Lord about midnight. This is what God told me to say. I'm saying it. That, that's really all we really have to do. Do you know that's really what it comes down to? Just obedience. Okay, here's what he told me. To do. Here's what I am to do. And if I have something to say to somebody who needs the Word of God, let's say they're lost, they need salvation, here's what we tell them. We tell them the truth. you know. And he's the one that's going to do whatever he wants to do with that. We don't have to change people's minds. He's the one that has to do that. It's His Word. But we, could, we sure have the authority, if we've been in His Word, to, to give that out. Something's going to happen at midnight. And the time is told when it will happen. 
God is right down to the detail. He's saying it's going to be uh, about right at midnight. God is perfectly accurate in His timing and whatever He does. The next midnight, all the firstborn in Egypt would sleep the death... Uh, would would sleep right into death, I guess is what it comes down to. All the families are going to be roused at midnight. It's not one of those things I think you wait till the morning hours because in chapter 12, uh, after this happened, in verse 30, it says, So Pharaoh rose in the night, he, all his servants, and all the Egyptians rose in the night. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house when there was not one dead. And they knew about the warning. I'm sure this crying started happening pretty immediately. And I don't know how many people lived there in Egypt, but I'm sure being the great empire that was, there were probably millions of people that um, experienced this in the fact that it was a brother that just died if you didn't if you didn't have children or if you had children your parents you just lost your child it affects everyone in Egypt and so when god brings on punishment he wants to make all know how serious it is when you do not give him glory and he was patient for a long time and now it was time that this this happened this is um, the God that we love. You say, why would He take all these lives like that? That's just not fair. But we know, don't we? And we'll get into that, uh, the justness of God in, in a moment. But the, the next midnight, this, this all happened. And we, we think about the Israelites and all of their baby boys who were born back in the early chapter of Exodus. When we get into chapter 1, all the things that came upon Israel, the slavery and then the killing of the, their firstborn male child, or their, all the babies, boys. So God, throughout this particular plague, I believe, is showing retribution on the things that they did. I think what we see is that when you have the Egyptians killing Israelite boys, then, and that's God's children, then He gets back at Him, I guess you could say in a human sense. It's more than just getting back at. God is you know, controlling this anyway. I mean, He could have done that right from the very outset. But all of this is all a part of that plan that he has. Now, the firstborn, he says in verse uh, 5, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Firstborn really belong to who? Yahweh. Of course, all children belong to God. They're all His. But whenever you were an Israelite, or people of God, whenever they would have a firstborn, they would dedicate that particular child to God. Of course, they all should be. But there is a special significance. This firstborn does not belong to the Egyptian gods. And that's how the Egyptians took it. He demonstrates that by claiming them as the first fruits. They said they were the first fruits of the Egyptians' gods, and he's saying, no, they're mine. And this is an attack on a god by the name of Osiris. Osiris is part of that Egyptian trinity. This is high up. And I say it would be an implicit attack on Osiris. It's not said here, but um, he's the Egyptian, or that's the Egyptian god of the dead. And they couldn't control that. And God is showing, I'm the God of life, and I'm the one who has power over life and power over death. And they, in those uncertain terms, get the message. They understand what's going on here uh, as this develops as we go into chapter 12. Even the cattle were affected, firstborn. They were objects of Egyptian worship, if you'll remember. 
Isn't that incredible? Also, Pharaoh and his son. I guess he could be the prince. He lost him. His servants, same thing. It affected everybody. Nobody was immune in this sense. And so, Pharaoh was considered a son of the god Re, or Ra, the sun god. And he's a son of that. Pharaoh himself is that. Anyway, that's the way that they took that. And that's why um, the firstborn is significant to them. We know, and as far as Israelites, we know that that is a big deal to them. Uh, if we were to look in Exodus 4.22, way back there, before the plagues happened, God speaking to Moses, 22 and 23, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. That was an accident that God had said that. There's significant. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. You let my people, my firstborn, which is the whole nation of Israel, and if you don't, I'm going to kill your firstborn. And he did. Now he's already, you know, been warned that. You know, Moses has been talked to by God. He said, this is what's going to happen. Here's what you're going to have to say to Pharaoh. Pharaoh should have been fearing that all along, shouldn't he? Of all, all the things that could happen. Now let's go to Jeremiah. 31, verse 9. We're still speaking on on the firstborn. They shall come with weeping, and with supplications I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. You see, there is a significant matter there, the, the firstborn. So he's saying... These are people that he's chosen here. Pharaoh, you must know that these are the ones that I'm going to deal with here. I want you to know that. Hosea 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So there again, you know, see what he's appealing with? Throughout Scripture we see that that's important. We can go back to Genesis 49.3 and you have the um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, of course, and then, then Joseph. But Joseph was the brother of those twelve. And in Genesis 49.3 you have Jacob in his last words to his sons and he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, where everybody else is going to come from. You are the very beginning that shows this. The excellence of dignity and the excellency of power. Reuben had some problems, and you go down and see the negatives, starting in verse 4. But he says you are the firstborn. He didn't erase that in the sense that here's what happened physically. This is something that... Um, Firstborn would get the double blessing. You think of that throughout the Old Testament. So it was really something very important to not only the Israelites, but also to the Egyptians too. And we see that uh, it was special to them, but it was not only special to the Egyptians, that firstborn being taken, but the firstborn were considered sacred. Even more set apart than sacred. Now, it's interesting how God takes the firstborn and the secondborn throughout Scripture. Man takes his view of that firstborn and God says, no, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to do it with the secondborn. And it illustrates our first birth physically and He cannot accept that as far as eternity is concerned with Him. It's only the second birth in Him that He accepts. And He illustrates that quite frequently. You have the brothers... Cain and Abel. Who did God work through? Abel. He chose to do it that way. Then how about Seth? He worked through Seth. He worked through through Shem or the Semites, which would be you know the Israelites and the people up in that area where they were at. Then instead of Ishmael, he worked through Isaac. 
instead of Esau, the firstborn, he worked through Jacob. So we see that quite frequently saying, this is the way that man works, but this is not always the way that God works. He often rejected the firstborn and I think, and then chose the second one to carry on that family line. And I think it's a great illustration of showing that he can, by his own grace and mercy, do what he wants. I think these kind of choices show that and magnify God is a sovereign God of grace. Because the second one didn't deserve to be um, blessed either, did he? The first one of all people should have. And it's kind of showing what works are. Or you can brag about because, hey, I was here first, so I get this. Hey, look, I'm better. Uh, So God just goes to the extreme and says, I'm not playing it that way. Now, Moses uh, warns Pharaoh that the way that he treated God's firstborn, I think that's really what's being highlighted here, would determine how God treats the firstborn of the Egyptians. There's nothing left for Pharaoh but to lose his firstborn son in retribution. I mean, that would be the worst thing that could happen to you. Except maybe his own selfish self being taken. But this had to be terrible in his eyes. It was to all of them. Now, we look at verse 6. And it says, Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. I guess. Such as what, what was not like it before, nor should be like it again. That had to be one of the biggest nights of terror. You hear about terrorism today? This had to be one of the biggest, maybe the probably the worst terror in the Mideast that anybody has ever known. What an effect. Because of what Pharaoh had done. If only he would have given in somewhere along the line. But this extends from the king's throne all the way on out through the people to the very lowliest servant girl that they had. Not not talking Israelites, but other servants. All the way down. Every one of them. The cries, I think, are a reminder here of the Israelites when they were in oppression. Do you see how all of these things are coming back? Turn back to chapter 3, verse 7. There is a retribution happening here, but in a much worse way. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. God knows what His people go through. He doesn't forget. He knows what's happening. And He may not bring on that retribution now. But it will be later. The the word for cry. He heard their cry. I think that's the same word that's being used here in Exodus 11.6. You have the same great cry. The cry that the the Israelites had, the Egyptians now have all over the land. And there at midnight. A terrible circumstance that is happening. But God is bringing out what had to be done. There would never be a shock wave like this again. Nothing to match what had happened. I, I can't even visualize what all was going on. Uh, how horrible when you realize it's your own child and then you find out your neighbors and the same thing on down the street and you find out it's all over the land. Now the question would be, you guys wouldn't be questioning this, but the question might be, was this just? Was how is God just to bring about a punishment even though it was really Pharaoh, the leader, who was hardened by this? Why would He punish the rest of the people? They just did what they were told by Him. I think something is very similar by Hitler back in the 30s, 40s. They, uh, the people were really under a leader and of course they were kind of brainwashed through it in a sense or the pressure came and a lot of the people in the church didn't necessarily agree with it and there were some I think uh, maybe a thousand or two thousand pastors that uh, at least kind of lined up with uh, Niemöller and uh, um, Bonhoeffer 
Of course, Niemöller, I think, uh, was killed for that, and then Bonhoeffer, too, as time went on. He'd been in jail. He wrote wrote some letters and stuff, but um, they knew what was happening. Uh, but yet, they were killed, too. Godly men. And um, if you didn't go along with that plan, in course of the war, look how many thousands and thousands of people all over the world got killed and they weren't even involved in the war. And you say, well, yeah, war is not just, but, but God did this. Well, we have to take the character, first of all, of God. And I think that's where we always start. Okay, is He a righteous and just God? If He is a God that just does anything on the whim and He just does it because He just likes to do it, um, then we would have the right to question that. But still yet, that doesn't mean it's going to change anything. Because he still has the power. But the thing is, what does Scripture say about God? In Psalm 89, verse 14, it says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. So we have righteousness and justice here, and that's the very foundation upon what the throne is built. God is. That is His character. It's not something that He practices occasionally. <laughs> but it's, it is Him. That defines who He is. And mercy and truth. He can put on mercy whom He wants to. That means that we are not based upon righteousness and justice. We as a people are sinners and have sinned and done heinous things against Him. And we are evil and wicked before this holy great God. And yet, He puts mercy on some of those wicked and evil people. And that would be some of us, or all of us sitting here today, and other people we know. He gave us truth and gave us mercy and, and brought us out of that. That's where it starts. So, He is fair to throw away everyone that He created and start over or do whatever He wants. That's fair. So when people start that way, we have to think, hey, I have no right to even live on this earth that He created. He is so good. And then He comes along and blesses us, gives us all the colors. The weather has just been super good. That's an extra added little addition that you can just thank God for. But if it was terrible out there, you'd say, thank you, Lord, for giving me this day. But if He gives you a little bit of extra, and you can say, look at the beautiful flowers he gives us animals to enjoy or other people to enjoy we get you know the opportunity to come together and enjoy each other and i mean just we have an abundant abundant resources that god has just blessed us with and even unbelievers have the same thing or a lot of that some of those things so good in genesis 18:25 That's, that's the whole point. They, they don't understand the character of God when they say, how can a just God do that kind of thing? Well, they don't understand the situation that man is in. His, his terrible bondage to sin. 18.25 Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked, far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Now this is Abraham and God speaking, and he says he knows that he's the judge of all the earth, and he, he says, shall not all the judge, this judge, you, you the great God, shall you not always do what is right? So the Lord said, oh, good. Yeah, he's being really good with Abraham, anthropomorphisms, and he's dealing with him, getting on his level, giving him some baby talk. Just baby talk to the great father Abraham. <laughs> if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. All God is wanting to do is saying, hey, listen, go and find somebody that's righteous there. And it turns out to be the ones that God had spared and they were righteous because of God. And He gets him down and He shows him that there really is nobody righteous outside of who God is and given the mercy to Lot and his family there. Uh, you know, the, the bargaining deal, it kept going down in the numbers all the way down. Was it ten, right? Uh, how about five? It's all the story for lack of five. So if I find, or oh, okay, 45. 40. 30. 20. 10. 
where Abraham... I mean, Abraham really had a heart for, for the people, you know? Or, uh, I keep saying Abraham. Okay, yeah, he's interceding, right? Okay, for Lot and, his, and then that family. And uh, God said, I'll not destroy it for the sake of ten. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. He knew who the ones were, though. I think Abraham realized that uh, there weren't 50 there, there weren't 40. Well, it came down, down to a really low number that God was holding back there. But it was to get him to know that. But he, he, he still made Abraham pleading. And that was good. He gets us to do that. Okay, now we uh, want to move to um, verse 7. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you. After that, I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. Now, these are proud enemies of God and of God's people. And they are made to fall down and humble themselves before Moses. How could that ever happen? Only God can do this. This is just incredible. We see the grace, the distinction that's made between God's people Israel and the Egyptians. God did that based upon His mercy, desiring to do that. makes a distinction. They are His chosen people. They are the ones the Egyptians are not. And again, I, we see God's gracious election here involved and in His people. There's, he, and He makes distinctions. There are some people that He loves and there are other people that He loves more. God can do that. And uh, as James White said in a debate one time, you know, there's uh, dealing with a, an Arminian who believed that uh, you know, God loves everybody in the same equal manner. That's absolutely not true at all. You can't see that in Scripture. And, of course, he even used, well, okay, take a husband and his wife. There are different degrees that we we love people. Is he going to love his wife uh, more than he loves his neighbor over there next to him? Well, of course he is. You know, there is a difference. There's a distinction in that love. Now, he is commanded to love everybody. We all are. But yet there's a more of a love for certain people that are close to us. You know, that's just human nature, but we know that that's the way that God operates too. That's the way that He operates here. And He has more of a love for Israel than He does Egypt. Is it because Egypt was worse than Israel? Well, probably not. They are all depraved people. But here again, we see this, this character of God. And so, uh, to sovereign grace, working all through here, not trying to even read into the text. I think we have to to take it the way that is. But we have tranquility where the Egyptians are at. And there wasn't even a barking of a dog there. Just quiet as could be. And then the Egyptians with all their cries of despair. I think this had to bring a note to them that stuck in their brain. Without a doubt, Israel's Yahweh is much bigger than our gods. Our gods can't even contest with Him. There is no contest because there are no gods. They're, you know, they're made up in their own minds. Verse 8 says, And all these your servants shall come down to Me and bow down to Me, saying, Get out and all the people. Can you, can you imagine that? It's no longer the Pharaoh that they're bowing down to and worshiping who is considered to be a God, a son of God. But it's now Moses, or it's actually who Moses represents, Yahweh. Moses is not going to take worship from people, but they recognize how great that uh, he is in their eyes and in what God has done through there. We look at the anger of Moses in the end of 
uh, verse 8. After that I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. Can't you see him? At the end of the summons that Pharaoh had desired, Moses' anger much more than Pharaoh ever even had. In in a true sense. And we know that Pharaoh has already been very angry of, of what has happened. And he says, I don't want to see your face again. And if I see your face again, you will die. Now, that's what Pharaoh said. I think that's pretty angry. Moses comes along and makes this statement. And it's just like he turned around, went like that, did a 180 degree turn, and marched right out of there. Strode right out of the room. There was no need to apologize for the authority that had been given. This whole message was from God and it was God's message. It's not saying, hey, I'm sorry we had to bring all these things on you. I know this is a terrible thing, but you know that's the way it's just going to be. He just got out of there. He had a righteous anger because of the very hardness of heart that Pharaoh had. It had reached its max pretty well, I guess you could say. I think there's a sinful stubbornness here of a very foolish man. And that's the responsibility of him. Even though we know that God has played the big part in what he's doing, we still see the responsibility of man, and that's that's Moses. Yeah, I think he's a perfect picture of what man can do naturally if he be let go to do what he wants to do. Now, Moses actually was the meekest of all men, it says in Scripture. Moses is a very meek man. The meekest of all men. Boy, that tells you quite a character. But to get angry like that, did he have the right to do that, to have anger? Well, he certainly did. It's a good thing to have anger when it's dealing with the holiness of God. And I'd probably say that's the only time we really have the right to be angered. What if somebody offended me? Well, if they offended you because of the holiness of God, then you have an anger that you take take to God and make sure and, and check that off. See if there's any evil, wicked way in me, Lord. Kind of like what David had said. Check me out. And then if you know that it's dealing with the holiness of God and who He is and what His character is about, then you have that right. The holiness of God has been spurned. Matter of fact, not only the right, I think we should be angry over some things that are happening in our nation. Um, people who uh, take God's name in vain. We should be that. But yet at the same time, how we display that, I think we have to be very careful, though, too. Moses just presented what was truth and then left. It was not that he uh, you know, was always down, down the throat of them. You know, that, that can come into a self-righteousness. We, we know what that can develop into. But I think it can remind you of Jesus and His anger when He overturned the tables at the temple. He did that a couple of times. He exchanged you know, the money and the, the animals. Um, another time where He was angry was whenever religious people would come to Him and say that He couldn't heal on the Sabbath. Uh, he was angry at, at that time whenever they brought... Or there was a man with a withered hand and he healed him on the Sabbath. He was angry for the fact that they said that was wrong for him to do, to, to be healing on that, on that Sabbath. To be, listen to this, this is what Matthew Henry says, to be angry at nothing but sin is the way not to sin in anger. I'm going to say that again. Does this make sense? To be angry at nothing but sin is the way not to sin in anger. If we're angry at the sin, that is a good thing. We should first start with our own sin. And really, that's about enough to handle. (laughs) We should hate that sin that we have to fight constantly. We know. We know we, we have to deal with that. Listen to what Matthew Henry says here too. It is a great vexation to the spirits of good ministers to see people deaf to all the fair warnings given them and running headlong upon ruin 
notwithstanding all the kind methods taken to prevent it. It's a vexation to the the very godly ministers, or anybody for that matter, who give warnings and people have a deaf ear to what the warnings have been given and they run right on in to ruin. And they've been warned. And people have taken methods to prevent that. That is the thought that Moses has here. He's been warning and warning and warning. And uh, we see that uh, as far as Pharaoh is concerned, nothing good is coming out uh, for him as far as the way that he looks at it. Now we go to the last two verses and it's about the hardening again. And we've gone three weeks before this week dealing with the hardening of a heart. Part one, part two, part three. I could have gone with part four today because it would have matched all of that, but um, it might have caused confusion. <laughs> because I say, oh, I think, haven't I seen that before? Oh, it's the same message. Um, but the same result. Pharaoh is hardened. And God said from the outset that I will Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh's heart will be hardened by me. And at the very end, He says, I harden his heart. And he gives the reason why he does it. There's a purpose in God hardening Pharaoh's heart. We've had one miracle after another, after another. They had been displayed. They had been revealed. They showed the great, awesome, amazing power of God. All on display for Moses and Aaron the servants of Pharaoh, Pharaoh himself, and other people have been in on this throughout all that nation there. And this God who kept revealing Himself in so many ways is bringing this to a dramatic climax. Everything here that He has said is really done. We're going to be done through this right here. Verse Ten. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So here's the, here's the deal. Pharaoh is not going to pay attention because I want to take those wonders, those plagues, all, and all ten of them, I want them to be seen, to be multiplied. Everybody will know where this came from. That's why I'm doing it. It is for my purpose that all this has happened. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. Pharaoh... has sinned against about as much light as one could possibly have. How much more light could have been revealed about who God is? How obvious it was. I mean, it wasn't that... It was not extended to him. It was there. And the Lord endured with patience. Could you say through all ten plagues, as long as this went out, this would be a very patient God? How about all those 400 years? And you think of the bondage of His people. All the things that were done. And God was patient. And it says in Romans 9, and it's a very difficult verse, but in Romans 9.22, I think really helps explains this, and it comes off the heels of a section that was dealing with uh, Pharaoh and uh, where God would show mercy to whom He wanted and not show mercy to others. He says, uh, He endured with much patience vessels prepared for destruction. I think in Romans 9 is saying, here's one of them right here. He was a vessel made by God. Ultimately, he is going to go to destruction. And at the same time, we see also he is held responsible for what he did. And that comes back to our human minds and we cannot fathom it, can we? I can't. 
and I never will. Because my mind is not infinite like God is. His is perfect. That's where I have to trust Him and say whatever He does, He does is right. Then it goes back to that fairness issue. And it comes back to me. And my question is not, well, how come He doesn't give mercy to some of those other ones? The thing is, is why would He ever give mercy to me? That's my question. Me, myself. That's the question I always have to steer it back to people. In John twelve thirty seven through forty, and in Romans ten sixteen, we see that there was a hardening of Israel. There was a judicial hardening of them. Back weeks ago, when we studied Romans 10, 9, 10, and eleven, you know that God hardened them. You know we we can't avoid that. That was His own people of all things. They're hardened today because God did that. Wow, what a plan that God has. It goes way above and beyond, I can imagine. Uh, and this is all this is doing, plus many other things. But I think the major thing is the sovereign plan of God is being stressed here. And we worship Him because of that. This is just incredible. Verse 10 is showing that the Lord did it. Did the wonders. The reason is is that, uh, and he does it by hardening his heart so that these wonders would be displayed. Otherwise, they wouldn't have. If the Pharaoh would say, hey, let him go, and you only had a couple plagues, wouldn't have been such a big deal, would it? Momentous time in history. My goodness, secular people make movies about this. Christian people make movies about it. The stories, the story, it's in all storybooks. I know a lot of people today would take all this as fables and just a nice little story for kids and they would leave out all the bloody, gory stuff, probably especially this Passover thing. Ecclesiastes 8.11, I think, says uh, a lot as we get ready to wind down here. In chapter 8... Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. When God doesn't judge immediately, and He can, and sometimes He does, but if He holds back in His patience and doesn't bring it on, what it does is whenever He delays punishment, it brings further disobedience. I think in Romans 2 it mentions something about that, that people, uh, God is so good in giving the patience there for them to repent. That's a mind blower, isn't it? The delay of God's judgment leads to further disobedience. Pharaoh was a very prideful man. And he represents the natural hardened hearts of all men who've ever lived on the face of the earth, past, present, and future. We're all prideful. And we know that that's what we battle with. That's our number one sin as we think about ourselves so much. And if it were not for the mercy and grace of God, we would meet the same destruction that happens ultimately with Pharaoh and, and the Egyptians. Proverbs 16.18 says this. You know about this one. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Boy, there was a tremendous fall for this Pharaoh and the people. Got at the very end here, a guy writes a good commentary on Exodus. Peter ends. says, What is about to happen will fulfill God's plan on a level much deeper than simply retribution for the king's actions. Pharaoh was being used by God. His actions were scripted so that God can execute His plan. So it finally goes back on who God is. That leaves me in awe. It leaves me overwhelmed and knowing that God is perfectly right in doing what He does. 
I am so thankful that we are vessels of mercy that He has planned for His use. Are you guys struck by that? We truly are. And all we can do is just thank God for that and desire to be used as a vessel however He wants to use us. Thank You, Lord, for giving me this opportunity to be in this earth, living at this time, and You've mapped it out for me. Whatever comes up next, Lord, that's what I want to do. Whatever You want. Be like Moses as he gets near the end of those plagues and he became even more a firm believer. That's, that's where our walk wants to go. So let's, uh, let's close with prayer. And thank you guys for 